You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, while the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular by Michael Jordan! And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Welcome, listeners, to the 17th week in On the NBA Beat history. This week, we're going to be talking about the Cleveland Cavaliers, who have started the Tyron Lue era off with a bang, winning their last five games. We're excited to bring on Conrad Kazmarek, former editor of SB Nation's Cleveland Cavaliers website, Fear the Sword, and former social media coordinator for the NBA. Despite what you might gather from his Twitter avatar, he does not look like Anderson Verajao in a Snuggie. Conrad, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a really crazy time for the Cavaliers these past few weeks, especially two weeks ago with the firing of Coach David Blatt while the Cavs were first in the conference. We've all read a lot of news reports about the incident, but can you sort of contextualize that decision for us a little bit more what happened leading up to it that made that a reality for the Cavs yeah so I mean I think it's been pretty well well covered by uh, a lot of the guys who are on the ground in Cleveland but it really feels like at least how I came away from those reports is that they just didn't really like him (laughs) Uh, I think my personal opinion of David Flat was that he was a very competent coach and had some like kind of high profile and highly magnified uh, mishaps or maybe like blunders. Yeah, blunders. But in the aggregate, I think he was a, a very good coach. I think he did a lot of really good things with the team. People always criticized his usage of Kevin Love and said he wasn't getting enough from him, but I mean, the second half of last season, the Cavs had the best offense in the NBA. So I think he did a lot of really good things. And I think he's a good basketball coach and can be a good NBA coach, but maybe just wasn't the right fit for this team. I mean, clearly wasn't the right fit for this team because despite they were what I believe 30 and 12 at the time and had just blown out the Clippers and were like, yeah, we need to get rid of this guy. So <laughs> Uh, it's it's definitely a weird and unprecedented thing, but if you kind of just get down to the the core of it, it's like if the a guy that they had to spend time with every day, uh, and they just they just weren't responding to him, and they didn't like him. <laughs> yeah, I think the timing of the decision was the most puzzling thing for a lot of people, and it seems like as you were saying, it was sort of like a clash of personalities. He didn't get along with a lot of the players and the staff on the Cavs. So I guess that begs the question, if the writing seemed to be on the wall for a while, why did the decision, you think, come in the middle of the season? As you said, I think they were 30-11 and at the time, obviously first in the East. Yeah, well, so I guess the question is, why didn't they fire him before the season started if they already knew that these issues existed? I mean, there's definitely the... I think it's hard to do coming off of finals where you were shorthanded, you still took it to six, six games against the Warriors. And I think 
they're just trying to get everybody back together and said, all right, well, let's get healthy and take another crack at this. I think at that point, everyone's probably like all in on it and ready to give it another shot. You get a break from each other. You go home and go to vacation for the summer and then you get back and you go, oh yeah, this is what, this is what it's like dealing with these guys every day or just having the dynamic that they had. So I understand why they've kind of got, I don't know, wanted to at least give it a shot and see if they get everybody healthy and bring back the same crew and go, go at the Warriors or whoever comes out of the West again. But then I think David Griffin, the GM, probably just observed it and was in the locker room for a decent amount this season and kind of just said, okay, this is enough. This has reached a point where it's not going to get better. And even though David Blatt's a good coach, this, this isn't a healthy locker room or a healthy uh, chemistry for the team. Yeah, that's a good point. We'd probably have a lot of the same questions if the decision had come over the offseason after that shorthanded finals. But now with head coach Tyron Lue, they've rattled off five straight wins, and they've looked good, especially offensively. What are the biggest changes you've seen under head coach Lou? He's talked a lot about instituting an up-tempo more higher pace offense. And do you think that's suitable for the personnel that they have? I mean, I, I think it's definitely a good idea. It depends how much you follow LeBron James teams in the past, but he is not, even though he's a monster in transition, his teams are never high pace teams. Uh, he's a something of a control freak on the court right. where he likes, and, and it makes sense, right? He's, he thinks he's the best player in the world. So he says the best thing to do is for me to have the ball in my hands and me make decisions. I'll draw the defense in and either get to the basket or find open shooters, which he's fantastic at, but that's just what he's most comfortable doing. So I think the tendency for a lot of his teams are for them to slow it down and play in the half court and let LeBron do his thing, which works great a lot of the time. That said, when you have the athletes the Cavs have and you have LeBron, you have Kyrie, it makes sense to run in transition when you have the opportunities. So I think there's a lot being talked about with Tyron Lue trying to push the pace and have them play at a faster pace, but the numbers don't really bear that out in the first six games that they've played. They're pretty much playing at the same pace, if not a little bit slower at times. It doesn't really mesh with the eye test because the eye test seems like they're playing faster. It seems like they're getting out in transition more, getting into their half-court sets quicker earlier in the shot clock. But the numbers thus far in an admittedly very small sample are not significant. We were talking about that before the show, that their pace is exactly the same. It's third slowest in the league. And it's obviously a small sample size, but it is interesting to note. I, I think also it's just that it's so new and their offensive efficiency is so good that it just fits the narrative well with what Lou was saying. So the media is talking about an up-tempo offense right now. I want to ask you about the players-only meeting that was held right after the decision to go with Tyron Lewis as head coach. It's really seemed to galvanize the team. There was a clearing of the air, and issues that went a long time without being addressed were supposedly discussed. How much of that do you buy as making a real impact? It's obviously a great media narrative. Yeah, anytime a team fires their coach, you always hear all the same things about the the locker room being galvanized and and whatnot, which I think there's some truth to. 
I think it, it's kind of a kick in the ass when you see someone else lose their job because you're not playing hard enough or you're not playing well enough. Now, that wasn't necessarily the case with the Cavs because they were in first place. But I think there's the kind of a natural tendency to say, all right, well, this guy, we can't let this guy just lose his job for nothing. We got to look at ourselves in the mirror and say that there's some issues that we have to work out. It wasn't just, oh, David Blatt isn't good or David Blatt doesn't fit in. Let's get rid of him and everything will automatically get better. It's like a reality check that says this locker room wasn't in a good place. We made the change that we think that the team wanted. Now it's on you guys to figure out all your issues and mm-hmm. come together as a team. It makes sense. Whether or not that happened, I don't entirely know. I mean, again, it's been a short amount of time and it's been a relatively good time for the Cavs. I mean, they blew out the Spurs. They've won five in a row. I think we'll see more of how they react to Tyron Liu and the kind of atmosphere in the locker room when they fall on yeah. some harder times, when they run to some adversity. Yeah. Uh, we'll see how they react because that's, that's what really matters. It doesn't matter how they're doing when they're beating the Pacers or whatever other teams that they're playing in the middle of uh, January and February. It's about when someone gets hurt and someone else needs to step up or when they run into a tough game in the playoffs, that's when you see what the chemistry of the team's like. Yeah, I totally agree. And getting Kevin Love involved has been huge. I know it's a small sample size, but he's getting a lot more touches in the key and also on the elbow. They're doing more extended pick and pops. Why do you think there was such a failure under Blad? I'm not blaming David Blad, but for whatever reason, Kevin Love just didn't seem very comfortable before in the offense. And do you think that this is sustainable for Kevin Love? Because when he's at his best, it seems like the Cavaliers are at their best. Yeah, there's no question about that. When Kevin Love is active and involved and most importantly, hitting shots. The Cavs are on a whole different level that they they can't reach without without him having an impact. But as to whether or not it's sustainable or if David Blatt's firing had a big impact, I'm not so sure. I think there's definitely been an effort to get him more touches and more variety of touches under Lou. And I don't know if that's David Blatt or if that's the improved chemistry and communication between LeBron and love or it's just the whole team in general or the exactly only meeting maybe yeah so i'm not exactly <laughs> sure what the what the cause of it is but it definitely yeah. looks like they're they're doing more and using his skill set a little better that said he's also a shot at the moment and when when he makes shots it makes it's a lot easier for the team to go back keep going to him right uh i think when you have a team this ta- with this much talent, specifically Kyrie and LeBron. When Kevin Love's not hitting the shots, the really wide open shots that they're getting him, there's they have a tendency to just kind of lose confidence in him pretty quickly and say, okay, well, if Kevin's not going to make shots, then Kyrie and LeBron can just do more on offense because they're perfectly capable of doing that. And then they have a tendency of doing that too much and getting away from Kevin, and then he struggles to get into a rhythm later. So I think it's it's definitely a process still. I mean, this this core has not been a long, around together for very long, but I think that's the next big step is when Kevin hits a little bit of a shooting slump, they need to resist the urge to go away from him and do it all on their own, and they need to keep it 
in the flow. Keep running the same stuff and just trust that these are really good players. It's going to work, run our stuff and execute and the shots are going to fall eventually. I forgot to add this too. He's finally getting into the team photos on Instagram. <laughs> That's good for him. Yeah, obviously that is the biggest, uh, the biggest change in the Tyron Lue era and the most important. Definitely promising <laughs> for his morale, at least. Now, every year it seems like a LeBron James-led team wins the East and gets into the finals. I know that so much can happen between now and June, but at this point, how would you assess the Cavaliers' chances of coming out of the East? And it might be obvious, but which Eastern team poses the biggest challenge at this point? So I'm admittedly biased because I am a Cavaliers fan. I don't see really any way short of LeBron getting hurt that the Cavs don't make it out of the East. I mean, we saw last year where Kyrie and Love were hurt in the playoffs, and they still kind of walked through the East without much resistance. So it appears, and history suggests, that as as long as LeBron is there, he's going to the finals. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's been five years in a row now. And I don't really see any reason why it shouldn't make it six this year. Yeah, I think that's the prevailing opinion still, even amid all this turmoil, that the Cavs are, you know, essentially there's not that much competition for them in the East, even though the East is better this year. So if the Cavs do make it to the finals, let's say, do you think there's a Western team that they'd prefer to see of the teams that could realistically make it that they... (laughs) Uh, match up better against than others? Uh, yeah. Um, I think they want to, well, I don't know what they want to. Personally, I want to see anybody but Golden State. I don't think anyone wants Golden State. No, <laughs> nobody wants Golden State. And why would you? It's, uh, I have. If you're a sadist, up- maybe. <laughs> I have the utmost respect for everything that they're doing, uh, in the Bay Area but I want nothing to do with them because that team is just a juggernaut. It's when they're fully healthy, they they have no weaknesses and the Cavaliers, while a very, very good team, a 60 win team, they have weaknesses uh, because most teams made up of humans have weaknesses. The Warriors are not that. So I think the Cavs would have a decent chance against the Spurs or Thunder or and obviously anybody else if they happen to make it, uh, I am significantly less confident in the Cavs' chances if they face the Warriors. And over the last two weeks, two weeks a little bit more than that, they had that blowout loss against the Warriors, and then they followed that up with a blowout win against the Spurs. Are games like that in the regular season in January, do they feel bigger than normal regular season games or are they just like similarly meaningless? Do you think they have an effect on the team morale also? I think they probably do to a certain extent. They certainly feel bigger for me and for fans and people on Twitter because, I mean, if the Cavs had lost to the Spurs the second time, nobody would take them seriously if they go 0-4 against the Spurs and Warriors this season. So I think it's it's definitely bigger for fans and for media. Whether it's bigger for the team, uh, I I think it probably has to be to a certain extent. Whether it's big and important to LeBron, I have no idea. And I think ultimately that's really what matters, as most things with the Cavs. Uh, 
is how LeBron feels about it. I think he's a good enough leader and good enough at getting rallying his guys. So like if he's not afraid of the Warriors, then the team's not going to be afraid. But I really don't know how much importance he places on those regular season games. I think my if I had to guess, I would say that LeBron feels as though he has been there and done that and seen everything that he could possibly face. So he's not particularly concerned. He thinks, get me into the playoffs and I'll, I'll do my thing. But I will say that he has not seen anything like this Warriors team before. You made the comment about so much about the Cavs organization has to do with how LeBron is feeling about things. There were a lot of rumors coming out after the Blatt firing specifically from Brennan Haywood, that he didn't always feel comfortable holding LeBron accountable for his mistakes or didn't want to call him out. I think that's changing a little bit, supposedly, with Tyron Liu. But how much power does LeBron and, I guess, Rich Paul's camp have over these decisions in the grand scheme for the Cavs organization? Or is that just a perception type of thing that's overblown in the media, you think? Um, I mean, the Cavs and their GM will have you believe that LeBron is a team player. David Griffin's quote was, LeBron does not run this organization, he is about this organization. That's a nice thing to think. I don't know how true it is. I think LeBron controls as much as he wants to control. I'll, I'll say that. If he wanted to make the call all the shots and pick the coach and pick the assistant coaches and pick the equipment manager, then what choice would the Cavs have but to let that go? I mean, you having LeBron, even if he were difficult in those ways, is better than not having him. <laughs> so if he wanted to make those calls, then they'd let him. I don't know how much he feels he needs to flex his muscles and make sure everyone knows that he can get whatever he wants. But I think he has to have a, a, a decent amount of power. And you need to keep LeBron happy. Even if he's not outright asking for David Blatt to be fired, if you're watching the team and watching the locker room and saying, LeBron's not connecting with this coach, he's not get, the coach isn't getting through to him, he may not be saying, we need to get rid of this guy. But if you just watch their interactions, you're like, we could be doing better if he connected with the coach, then, then you do it. Because your best chance at winning a championship is having LeBron happy and involved and in the best position to lead the team. It's kind of common sense, but I get why there's the whole narrative about how he runs everything. Going over to the supporting cast, I think Matthew Dellavedova has made huge strides in just a few number of years, improving pretty rapidly. We saw it in the NBA Finals last year, and also when Kyrie Irving was injured to begin the season. He's hitting a larger percent of his threes now, over 43% as of press time. He's, I think, an underrated passer. He's up to almost five assists per game. He works well with Tristan Thompson, too, with the lobs. He's a pest defensively. What kinds of strides has he made in such a short period of time? Yeah, he's made enormous strides. He went from, like, a cute little story in the finals that nobody thought was sustainable to a legitimately good backup point guard in the NBA. I, th I would say one of the better backup point guards in the NBA. He's a knockdown shooter from three. On catch and shoots, he's shooting something like 49% from three, which is up there with the best of them. And 
like you said, he's a very good passer and he rarely turns the ball over. I don't know if he still is, but there was a time earlier in the season when he was leading the league in assist to turnover ratio, which is really impressive for a guy that I think most people would say doesn't have the cleanest handle. He's not a huge guy, but he's, he's careful with the ball and he makes intelligent passes most of the time. I'm not sure if he's leading right now, but the ratio is better than three to one, which is very good. Yeah. At that position. So yeah, I think, yeah, uh, he can care of the ball. Yeah. He's, he's turned himself into a pretty ideal backup point guard. He does, he takes care of possessions. He runs the offense and he hits outs and he defends. The biggest thing that he improved in the offseason is his, I think is his ability to hit some of the kind of not mid range, but kind of in that like, three to nine foot area kind of just outside of the restricted area Mm -hmm. it's by making he's hitting that floater a little bit more by doing that he's he's forcing teams to make a decision on on a lot of pick and rolls so they can't just let him have a wide open run to the rim or run into the lane they have to account for him and then that opens up the lob for tristan thompson a lot of the time and it's it's remarkable because when he's on the floor with Tristan Thompson, you know that's what the Cavs are going to try to do. Every team in the league has to know by now. If they don't know, then you're not watching the tape because they do it like twice a game. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing because it continues to work at an extremely high rate. But yeah, he, he's good at the, at the little nuances of the pick and roll. And he's, he reads the defense well and he delivers passes on target. I think it would be hard to say that this Cavaliers team has any glaring weakness, but maybe the wing position could be upgraded, I guess, is an opinion of some. I think Shumpert is solid defensively. They were doing a lot better defensively when he returned from injury, but the stats don't really show that overall they're a better defensive team, at least this season since his return. He doesn't really hit... I think as many threes as you would like out of him, but I think he's a pretty solid player. They have Richard Jefferson, who's obviously best years are way behind him, but he's a good locker room guy apparently. And he and LeBron love to talk basketball and, and life apparently. But what do you think about the wing position from the Cavaliers and, and do they need to do anything moving forward? Should they do anything? Like you said, I think there's, there's not any glaring weaknesses, but sure, they have some weaknesses. And in a league, in a year when there's teams like the Warriors and Spurs who are still in single digit losses, yeah. it's like, it's, it, you just can't have those weaknesses. I don't, you don't have a championship with just an Eastern Conference win. That doesn't, that doesn't right. get you the title. Right. And, but I, I, I think something that at least a lot of Cavs fans, I think are missing is that this is an like extremely good team. And in a normal year, I don't think we would, people would be dissecting them so much about if they need an upgrade on the wing or, or, or anything. It's like when a team is on pace to win 61 games, people are like, wow, that's like a really, really good team. It's just, we have this monster in, in Oakland, that's kind of obscures everybody's just, it just obscures everything about the league. It's because if, if you aren't a perfect basketball team, then you need to make a change, which 
is unfortunate. It's just, I guess it's just bad timing, but, uh, it's, it's when you have a team that like the Warriors where they're just like up, up and down the roster have, have answers to everything, no matter what style you want to play. It's, you have to be perfect and it's really hard. It's really hard to make a perfect basketball team. Yeah. The measuring stick is unbelievably ridiculous at this point. Yeah. So, so I, I think they could stand to in, make an upgrade on the wing. I have no idea who that player would be. I don't think there's many options and the Cavs don't have many avenues to add a player like that. There's a lot of teams that are kind of semi contending for playoff spots. The West is not as strong as it once was, which means there's a handful of other teams contending that would normally be already be out of the playoff race by now and more willing to deal at the trade deadline. So I don't know how many sellers there's going to be at the deadline. And I don't think the Cavs have that many uh, ways to make a trade for any of them because they're not going to give up players that are currently on their roster, I don't think. And they don't really have many picks in the going forward to give up. So it's, it's kind of hard. It, it, I think the one that could possibly be an option is if the Nets end up buying out Joe Johnson and the Cavs can just sign him as a free agent. But how much does Joe Johnson have left uh, is, a, is a good question. So I think the Cavs are okay on the wing. It's just when you're going against something like the state where they have Iguodala and Livingston and Draymond and Clay and Brandon Rush somehow, it's like you need to have a whole slew of guys, and that's kind of tough to do. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like we were talking before about it seems like this season a lot of teams are playing in Golden State's shadow with them doing so well. But at the same time, there are also a lot of teams, at least in bottom of the playoffs contention in the East especially. So a lot of those teams probably don't want to be sellers. They want to see how far their team can take it. The Cavs do have, although they probably don't want to give up any players or they don't have that valuable picks to give up. They do have a $10 million trade exception that they might be able to use. But then again, as you said, I'm not sure where they go with that. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of have to have an asset to attach to that unless it's a straight right. salary dump. Uh, and there's just really not that many players that, that fit into that. That makes sense at the moment. Tristan Thompson, that was a, a big, I think, bone of contention for LeBron James that it was taking so long and that his buddy and, and, um, teammate wasn't getting the contract that he wanted. It got done eventually and he's been huge. He doesn't score that much, but he's so important on the offensive glass and in other parts of the game. How important do you think he'll be moving forward for this franchise? They've obviously made a huge investment in him. I think he's extremely important. I am one of the founding members of the Tristan Thompson fan club. He's their starting center at the moment, and I think he's their long-term starting center. It was, I know he came out of college as an undersized power forward, but he more than holds his own at center against all but the most monstrous of centers, like the DeMarcus Cousins of the world. And there's basically one DeMarcus Cousins in the league right now. So against virtually all other teams, Tristan Thompson's a perfectly fine starting center. And when the Cavs play him at center and Kevin Love at power forward and LeBron at small forward, they're monstrous. They're one, they're 
super elite. They blow teams off the floor. So Tristan Thompson's very good at the things that people know that he's good at, like getting an offensive glass and finishing alley-oops. But he's also, I think, an underrated defensive player because he can switch on pick and rolls and guard guys out onto the wing for five to seven seconds if he needs to. And he provides enough rim protection and doesn't get abused in the post that he's a viable center with next to Kevin Love, which is huge. We started this show just talking about just kind of a lot of drama, but this team is so good. And I think that's important to remember, even in the shadow of the Warriors and Spurs. But it was a lot of fun talking with you and and learning more about this team because they're obviously going to be playing for a while longer and it'll be great to continue to watch. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. I'm always, I'm always happy to talk about this team. It's probably the best. I think it's the most talented Cavs team that they've had in their franchise's history. So even if they don't win a championship, I'm, I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah, definitely exciting for Cleveland too. They need a championship. Yeah.